Good afternoon. It's Monday the 24th of April 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Uh, joining me by video link, we've got David Scott and uh, Mark Anderson. Welcome to the programme both. Uh, well, let's get kicked off with uh, the emergency alert test that took place yesterday to absolutely no fanfare and most people not even noticing. Uh, Brian, I should say, was extremely disappointed that uh, his phone did not go off at 3 p.m., uh, even though we were doing the alternative view event yesterday because his phone is too old uh, to support it. Uh, so he didn't have to switch anything off. Uh, but nonetheless, the timing of this uh, was very interesting uh, because uh, the Defence uh, Science and Technology Laboratory, DSTL, uh, has been testing sensors which potentially plug into the uh, emergency alert system across the UK. Uh, let's just have a look at a little bit of video. The trial is a deployment of the Sigma Plus sensors that comprise the technology suite for detecting chemical, biological, and radiological threats in urban environments. The US program has been developing a range of sensors to try and detect uh, materials in the air uh, which indicate that a threat material is being made or a threat material is being used. The deployment is involving multiple locations within the London city area, and the purpose of the trial is to understand performance of our network sensors in a, in a different country than the U.S. That's a really big challenge in some respects, as well as to kind of understand the background characteristics of chemical and biological species. So the ultimate goal is to uh, develop the, the, the sensors and the alarm technology in order to provide protection for a U.K. city. Um, and also to uh, enable us to protect high value assets, so things like major sporting events. My job for most of my DSTL life is actually in a very early stage research programme. It's super exciting, but is not ready to go into the hands of a user and be functional out in the real world. So for me to see something that we've seen at a really early stage, decided has potential, and has come all the way through into applied programmes and into a contractor that's actually going to build a product that works, it's just what it's all about. So, David, uh, the timing of this quite incredible. What are your thoughts? Timing's, the timing's incredible, but also uh, I, I foresee unforeseen consequences. Um, for example, um, we're going to hook up an entire city to detect what exactly? Which chemicals? Because there are a great many chemicals which are potentially threatening. Which ones are we testing for? I, I don't know that there's any explanation as to what the answer to that one is. Um, and then, uh, what about false false positives? What about the chances of the alarm going off when it doesn't be well, burglar alarms that have gone off, car alarms? I don't think this one will be necessarily all that different. What if it goes off? You know, we're talking about events that have never happened. So the chances are that there'll be a high proportion of of false alarms to actual alarms, given the fact that we shouldn't really be expecting any actual alarms. Um, I think this is something that might be generating a lot of fear and not a lot of safety. Uh, that, that indeed is, uh, I couldn't agree more with that statement. So, so anyway, uh, if anybody was in any way disturbed by the alert system test yesterday, uh, this is what's coming. Just be prepared for it. Uh, this isn't about uh, adding to the fear, of course. It's about you know letting you know that that's uh, being prepared and planned for, and uh, well, you can make a decision about how fearful you might want to be over it. In the meantime, 
Uh, David, politics has been continuing. And uh, obviously on Friday, Dominic Raab uh, resigned following allegations of bullying. We're going to be uh, talking a bit more about that in a second. But he wasn't the only politician to be sanctioned. Uh, Diane Abbott also got it in the neck. Yes, and in both cases, I, I feel that there's a lot of injustice in this and actually quite concerning themes that are coming out. So firstly, we have the, the Times here speaking about Diane Abbott, and they're saying that uh, she's uh, been suspended, uh, the whip's been removed, um, and the reason is, um, well, uh, she was disciplined for claiming Jewish people could not suffer from racism. Right, which is a strange kind of summary of what ha happened. So, what actually happened? Well, she put a, a letter into into the Observer, into the Guardian, an, an Observer newspaper, um, and the letter we've got a copy of it here. Um, uh, read, it's not very long, um, so it refers to an existing uh, article called "Racism in Britain is Not a Black and White Issue; It's Far More Complicated." Um, she says uh, this this article claims that Jewish and traveller and Irish people all suffer from, quote, scare quotes, racism. They undoubtedly experience prejudice. This is similar to racism. And the two words are often used as though they're interchangeable. It is true that many types of white people with points of difference, such as redheads, can experience this prejudice. But uh, they are not all their lives subject to racism. In pre-civil rights America, Irish people, Jewish people, and travelers were not required to sit at the back of the bus. In apartheid South Africa, these people were allowed to vote. At the height of slavery, there were no white-seeming people manacled on slave ships. That last one, of course, ignores the one and a half million white people from Europe taken by the Barbary pirates uh, for the slave trade in the East. Uh, and by the way, it was genocidal because all the men were castrated so they wouldn't produce any offspring. But Diane doesn't care about that. Now, th this, is, this is a bit of a, a crass letter, but it comes from our ideology, and more on that later. Um, the original article it's referring to uh, by Tomina Olandi, Olandi, sorry, Oladi, beg your pardon, um, says racism in Britain is, what, is not a black and white issue, it's complicated. So she describes how um, she was told in sixth form, a student uh, told her with utter confidence that white people can't be victims of racism. Racism is about power and privilege. White people have the power and privilege and black people and Asians don't. This means the latter group can be victims of racism. Racism is an exercise of power and privilege against people of colour. So this is the this is the social justice warrior definition, redefinition of racism. They've changed the meaning of the term for political gain. Okay? She was explaining how she immediately thought, well, this isn't right. This just doesn't strike me as honest. It, it, there's something wrong here. And she concludes her article with, there are racial inequalities in a society. This much is true. Uh, but it should be approached with subtlety rather than simplicity. This is because uh, ethnic minorities people can, can have diverse experiences. Uh, and any commitment to fighting racial disadvantage needs to incorporate the complex truth, truth if it wants to be truly effective. Morally speaking, racism is a black and white issue, but when it comes to how it manifests itself, it's multidimensional. Uh, the most comprehensive survey on racial equality for 30 years needs to be examined comprehensively. And that survey illustrated that both um, Jewish people and traveller communities were amongst the most, co most commonly reporting uh, that they had re experienced racism. Now, the, the, the issue here is in part that the term is very confused. 
the term's actually essentially inaccurate, right? There are not many races of men. There are one race of men. They're not different genuses of men. They're not different kinds of mankind. There's one kind of mankind. There are different nations. There are different ethnicities. But that's the, the idea of race is has a, a pretty murky past. Um, part of the murky past is things like the Babylonian Talmud saying that, that the Hamites were punished um, uh, with black skin. So you had inherent, you know, you had racism kind of built into religious ideas that go way back. But also, and more immediately and more relevant to our society, as, as reported here in, in Wiki, amongst, um, amongst other sources, um, that you have a situation where uh, race acquired its modern meaning in the field of physical anthropology through scientific racism starting in the 19th century. This is with Darwin, etc. Uh, with the rise of modern genetics, the concept of distinct human races in biological sense has become obsolete. In other words, as the science has uh, progressed and we've got a little more understanding, we've realised that the historical idea that all mankind were shared a, a, a common ancestry and a common humanity was correct, and the 19th century scientific racist ideas were unscientific nonsense. But still, these ideas permeate society, and they permeate the, 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 the sort of pool of ideas that uh, Diane Abbott, Diane Abbott is, is, is drawing from. But I'm still very concerned that she's been suspended from it. The idea that it was anti-Semitic, the statement, no, it was crass, and it wasn't, it wasn't directed against Jewish people. It was, a, it was directed against anyone with light-coloured skin. And we should be having a conversation with her about why she's wrong, not looking to pin her to the wall and pin the anti-Semitism label on. I find this is troubling, unhelpful, inaccurate, and um, it's closing down a debate that actually needs to be had. What do you think, Mike? Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, of course, uh, uh Probably the reason they've played this particular card in this particular case is because of her association with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and, uh, and so in that case, it's, it, it is a lazy way to get rid of her. Uh, and, but I take, I take every point that you've made there. Now let's come on to Dominic Raab then. And we mentioned his, his uh, resignation letter, sorry, on Friday. We, we read a little bit out of it, but you've, you've got a couple of paragraphs from this you want to mention. Well, I mean, just this, the second, this, the second short paragraph here is that in setting the threshold for bullying so low, this inquiry has set a dangerous precedent. It will encourage spurious complaints against ministers and have a chilling effect on those driving change on behalf of your government and ultimately the British people. And I thought that had the ring of authenticity and accuracy about it. Um, we have here um, uh, an article from the Times how Dominic Raab was brought down over the bullying report. And he's basically, the, you see the cartoon here, he's been skewered, he's been stabbed in the back by the Humphrey Applebee's of this world. Um, so th th this, this is the line the Times were taking. The, Dominic Rabb spoke to the BBC and was much more specific. Um, uh, he, he said uh, that he was upset, uh, he was sorry if he upset anyone, but it wasn't bullying. He said there was a risk that a very small minority of officials with a passive-aggressive culture are trying to block reforms they do not like. Um, so he's talking about a handful of very senior officials. And he says again, if the bar, if the, bar the threshold for bullying is lowered, 
that low, it's almost impossible for ministers to deliver for the British people, and I think it will have a chilling effect on effective government. The British people will pay the price. Um, he added that a lot of ministers were now very fearful that the direct challenge that the direct challenge that they, they, they bring fairly and squarely in government may leave them at risk of the same treatment that I've had, he said. Now, this is an indication that there's a culture where you've got a small number of activists politically motivated and essentially subversive in that they're looking to change government policy, they're looking to prevent the um, decisions of the elected government, whatever you think of democracy, that's the system we have, uh, being put through by essentially fabricating um, attacks on individual ministers to take out anyone who causes too much trouble, who runs the country. This was the, the, the theme of the uh, yes minister, yes prime minister comedies in the 80s. Um, who runs the country? Is it the civil service or is it the politicians? Now, this is not the only uh, government minister that spoke well, look, just, out, just before, out on this. Look, sorry, David, just before Sorry, David, just before you move on to that, I just wanted to touch on that a little bit because um, while Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister were uh, taking a satirical look at the civil service and asking the question, who's running the country? It was really only, that. when was that? That was the 1980s. It was really only when Tony Blair uh, became Prime Minister that that, that notion, which was satirical, became factually reality because Tony Blair changed, made some significant constitutional changes at that time and made the uh, civil service much more powerful, uh, a power concentrated in the prime minister's office initially and then in the cabinet office and the cabinet office grew from being a couple of thousand people to actually, we don't really know exactly how many thousands of people are working for the cabinet office at the moment. Uh, and that the role of ministers uh, in the meantime has changed from being one where at least they notionally set policy to being one where, in fact, they're simply selling policy uh, to the to the, the population. And, and that was a, a really fundamental change. And if anybody thinks that this was a party political change, of course, it wasn't because those changes that Tony Blair began in 1998, uh, David Cameron continued in 2010 once he became uh, Conservative Prime Minister. And so it, this, is, this is something that goes beyond party politics again. Yes, and we've seen this obviously in Scotland with uh, when the SNP government first came in, the, the main policy innovations that they were selling, selling, you're quite right to use that word, were generated by the civil service. Oh, we've got some good ideas on shelf, you know, the last team wouldn't push them forward, but, you know, new broom, you might be interested. Here's the ideas. And, and the SNP ran with them. They didn't generate them. Right? It wasn't something, oh, name person and the whole Scottish model of government and whole removing departmental divisions and, and integrating the thing into a whole giant blob. All of this came from the civil service. Uh, so John Elvidge et al. Um, as I said, it's not the only time this has come up. Of In recent years, Kemi Badner spoke out about this last year, July 22, uh, over the Tavistock Clinic issues. Um, she said, uh, official advice, government officials will tell me not to meet the clinicians who are whistleblowers. Tell me not to meet the children, children who have been damaged, who have who've received treatment there uh, and, and uh, having to fight so much. She added, when she started asking questions, uh, meeting minutes would suddenly get leaked. A mysterious freedom of information request would be submitted trying to get at details from whistleblowers. I think it's a very hard thing to do right now because there's so much obstruction 
and that's something we need to fix. So she's talking about obstruction of government policy. Now, in this case, she was trying to find out if the Tavistock Clinic, which is now being closed down because of the harm it was caused, was harming people. And she had officials trying to keep her from speaking to the people who had been harmed, which is outrageous. And she summarised it as a small minority of activists. She said that uh, civil servants fell into three categories. There's a small minority of activists who are not impartial, a large group who will just do whatever is easiest, and some really brilliant ones. And I thought that was an excellent summary of what the civil service currently is. Um, and this small minority of activists, where could they have come from? David, uh, is this the common purpose at work again? Common purpose, uh, this is the, also the long march through the institutions. This is the, the idea um, that uh, the, 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 the far left will not uh, have a revolutionary change in this country, but will simply capture the institutions and change things by stealth, by gradualism. Uh, by slowly taking over all of the uh, all, all of the institutions of society which we trust, um, and this was a, effectively a policy. I mean, we can remember when uh, people were open, openly admitting you can get a job in the BBC unless you were a Marxist because you had to comply with the agenda. You had to comply with the basic um, the, the politicization of the of in this case the news or the or the entertainment you had to comply with the belief system the, the faith uh, otherwise you weren't welcome um, and on that subject uh, I picked this off of of Twitter um, and I thought it summarized things very well so here we got um, an explanation of gnosticism so uh, Eve is speaking to the serpent and the serpent says um, Eve, this paradise is a lie. It's made by an off-brand God. To keep you down, girl. Take this Gnostic knowledge and see and smash the prison. Ignite the divine spark within and make the real paradise you deserve. So that's a summary of Gnostic beliefs, which have been, going, which have been around for millennia. Um, and they're comparing it to um, uh, Marxism, right? Was Eve, capitalism is a lie made by the bourgeoisie to keep you down, girl. Take this Marxism, uh, smash the prison, ignite the class consciousness within and make the real paradise you deserve. And feminism, Eve, the patriarchy is a lie made by men to keep you down, girl. Take this feminism, smash the prison, ignite the feminist consciousness um, and create the real paradise you deserve. And critical race theory also. Um, this white supremacy is a lie made by white people. Uh, if you ignite your race consciousness, you'll have the paradise you deserve. And then finally, queer theory. This normality is a lie made by straight cis people. Um, take this queer theory and ignite the queer consciousness within and make the real paradise you deserve. Now, I, I believe that these comparisons and the underlying Gnostic nature of the ideas that, that, that we're seeing there are actually correct. And a good deal of this is coming out in people like Diane Abbott. And I, and I suspect in the activists within the civil service that are driving so many of the agendas, or at least stymieing um, any pushback against these agendas, um, and uh, as a result, slowly changing our society in ways that we haven't chosen, that we don't want, we wouldn't vote for, and uh, aren't really being discussed. Okay, thank you for that, David. Uh, now, this week is uh, World Immunisation Week. 
Uh, so let's bring the uh, UK's health security agency on screen that we're tweeting this out. In our latest blog, uh, looks at the free NHS vaccination program and how vaccinations protect your children throughout their lives. Uh, and they've got a blog all about that. Uh, and they followed that up with uh, another tweet here uh, set from, uh, well, sorry, it's a retweet from NHS England. The MMR vaccine protects children. It protects against three serious illnesses, measles, mumps and rubella. Uh, this World Immunization Week, make sure your child is up to date on their vaccinations. If they've missed any doses of their MMR vaccine, contact your GP practice. Uh, now, the information from the uh, UK Health Security Agency is that childhood immunizations are down 7% this year. So uh, significant uh, reduction in the number of children being uh, put on the full immunization, uh, in inverted commas, uh, program. Uh, but if we just put that uh, that one back on for a second, uh, I, I just was interested in the graphic, David, because uh, NHS 75, uh, since the first measles vaccine was introduced in 1968, 20 million infections have been avoided and 4,500 lives have been saved. And it struck me 4,500 lives have been saved. Um, that seems like a very low number from since 1968, uh, bearing in mind the potential impact of uh, MMR in particular uh, on young children. And I just think to you know, uh, friends of mine that, that work in the uh, education sector, in the primary education sector, talking about how many children, compared to even only 10 years ago, how many children are in the mainstream primary uh, education sector now that are damaged in some way, uh, whether that be autism or other kinds of, of uh, behavioral issues. Um, uh, uh, talking about you know, a, ch a school, for example, of 150 kids, maybe only having one, child that would be considered special needs 10 or 15 years ago, uh, now it being something like 50% of the children. We've seen this massive increase, uh, particularly in the last 10, 20 years, uh, in kids affected in this way. And nobody's asking any questions. In the meantime, the, the doctors and scientists that have spoken out on the potential harms of vaccines in, in children uh, have been vilified and, you know, in, in many ways similar to the way that uh, Diane Abbott and Dominic Raab have been. Uh, so they don't get the opportunity to be, to be heard in a mainstream sense. Uh, I, I think uh, these statistics on, on the use of uh, MMR in particular need to be questioned. Well, the statistics are just an example that 79.4% uh, of all statistics are made up on the spot. I mean, they, they're meaningless. Um, the uh, the long the long term reduction in the death rate from measles was 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 very strongly apparent before the vaccine was introduced. So if they're trying to claim that all the improvements since the vaccine was introduced are due to the vaccine, it's plainly false. Um, likewise, was the infection rate. Um, and yes, you're quite right. The 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 failure to address why so many more children are sickly. Um, or have um, the additional support needs of one sort or another compared to uh, years gone past is is really stark. And for any doctor wanting to ask uh, really probing questions in that area, uh, that would be career ending. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's uh, bring the issue of gene editing back on. Now. I'm just going to run through this again. We covered this uh, five or six weeks ago uh, because this uh, was following the uh, the fact that the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Bill had become an act. It's now the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Act. 
Uh, and I just want to remind everybody what this is about. This is about gene editing for food supply. Um, so here's what they're talking about. Uh, to remove plants and animals and produced, uh, that are produced through pre precision breeding technologies from regulatory requirements applicable in England to the environmental release and marketing of genetically modified organisms. So they're claiming that uh, organisms that are uh, genetically edited are not genetically modified. Uh, and remember, we're not just talking about the typical crops that you find in the fields, we're talking about animals as well. Uh, that goes on to say uh, that they introduced two notification systems, one for precision bred organisms used for research purposes and the other for marketing purposes, in other words, for food. Uh, the information collected will be published in a public register on gov.uk. Uh, that the, the Act establishes a proportionate regulatory system for precision bred animals to ensure animal welfare is safeguarded. And uh, we will not be introducing changes to the regulations for animals until the system is in place. Uh, and establishing a new science-based authorization process for food and feed products derived from using precision bred plants and animals. Now, the claim from the British government is that genetically edited organisms uh, of this type um, are simply uh, taking the process which could happen naturally through selective breeding and accelerating that, compressing the timeline on it. However, uh, people have been speaking out on this, including in the scientific literature. So here is one example, broadening the GMO risk ass assessment in the EU for genome editing technologies in agriculture. And just to take a couple of quotes from this, it says, however, there are numerous reports of unintended effects such as off-target effects, unintended on-target effects, and other unintended consequences arising from genome editing, uh, summarized under the term genomic irregularities. It goes on to say, we show that genome editing techniques are able to produce a broad spectrum of novel traits that thus far were not possible to be obtained through conventional breeding techniques. So this paper, at the very least, is saying, or at least calling out the lie that uh, this is really only about replicating scientifically what could be done naturally through selective breeding. Uh, and then we have this uh, report in The National from Scotland, uh, Food Exports Slam, the BBC for Lies about genetic edited, genetic edited Food. That's from May 2022. Uh, Dr. Michael Antonou, genetics exper expert from King's College London School of Medicine, said such reporting misrepresented the facts and was economic with the truth at best. Uh, this is where it gets really disingenuous, he said. Under the new bill, now an act, the insertion of foreign DNA is part and parcel of the deregulation. Uh, it goes on to say, it's not as if what's being deregulated is only gene edits that tweak or destroy the function of the genes, which are already there. It's also the insertion of foreign genetic material. They basically deregulated all manner of genetic manipulation of crops, but not just crops, also animals. And the other point here is, that uh, although he's correct to say that there is the ability uh, to introduce foreign genes, genes from other organisms into the organisms that you're adjusting, that you're editing, uh, the claim from the government is that's all right because those genes have to be taken out again before the final organism is either ends up in the fields or is uh, ending up on the dinner plate. Um, anyway, why am I raising this again? Well, first of all, just to remind everybody that this is where we're at in the UK at the moment but also because on the 10th of May, this event is taking place. Uh, it's called Opening a Door to Gene Editing in the UK, Farm Animals, Pets and Wild Nature. So what this says is the UK's new Genetic Technology Act allows gene editing of farm animals, pets and wild plants and animals. How concerned should we be? Uh, it says it removes the act, removes what the government called regulatory burdens from certain types of genetically engineered 
so-called precision-bred organisms commonly used in agriculture, the removal of basic regulatory controls such as environmental health and safety assessments, labelling, traceability and ongoing monitoring should be controversial enough on its own. But what many don't know, uh, because it's not been widely reported or discussed, is that the scope of the bill extends far, now the Act, extends far beyond the usual handful of commodity crops found on the farm into a wide range of animals, including farmed animals, both land-based and in aquaculture uh, and pets, uh, as well as to animals and plants found in wider nature. This is a sea change in the UK's approach to the potential uses of genetic engineering. Uh, the rush timetable of the bill's passage and its skeletal nature left little space for discussion about either scope or consequences. Uh, so this event is, there are going to be a number of speakers at this. Uh, Paul Stevenson, OBE, who's Chief, Pol Chief, Pol sorry, Chief Policy Advisor to Compassion, in world farming, uh, David Bowles uh, from the RSPCA, Pat Thomas uh, from uh, Beyond GMA, Bigger Conversation, uh, and it'll be chaired by uh, Dan Crossley from the Food Ethics Council. So I thought that was uh, worth bringing to everybody's attention uh, and uh, uh, well, uh, recommend people join that. Uh, now, uh, let's move on to this from the UK government because they've launched a new competition. Uh, this is the uh, Defence and Security Accelerator and they're pleased to uh, launch a new themed competition called Human Augmentation. Uh, human Augmentation refers to the use of science or technology to temporarily or permanently modify human performance. Uh, and so this, of course, as you can see from the graphic, is looking uh, like defense related. And in this case, this particular competition, it is. Uh, so let's have a look and see what they are wanting to focus on. Uh, so there, first of all, what is human uh, augmentation, well, it's sensory enhancement to support mission outcomes is their definition, or collaborative working, which includes human-to-human -human and human-to-machine interfaces. Uh, attenuation, uh, sorry, attention during tasks with a cognitive in, uh, uh, element, so they want to enhance people's attention uh, in this case. Enhanced decision-making uh, in terms of reduced time and improved outcomes. Uh, physical endurance, uh, they want enhancement of that. They want enhancement of strength and they want the ability to overcome limitations to physical and cognitive uh, fatigue. So for the purposes of this particular competition, there are three use cases that they're proposing. First, biofeedback systems. So this is systems that measure user state, interpret the resulting data, and deliver an effect based on the data. Uh, the second is the warfighter ensemble, they're calling it. Uh, this is equipment that is worn closely on the body and is designed to optimize and enhance biological functions. And finally, the final use case for this particular competition is sensory enhancements, uh, which is all about enhancing the human senses beyond typical uh, biological capability. Uh, and so there's a webinar to launch uh, this, uh, which is taking place uh, on the 3rd of May, uh, that's also on Eventbrite. Uh, and uh, this is uh, the Human Augmentation uh, Launch Webinar. Maybe some people would like to, to join that. Um, I, the links for those two uh, events uh, will be in the show notes on the UK Column website for anybody that's interested. But uh, David, what are your thoughts on this? Because we seem to be determined uh, to genetically engineer our food and also to genetically engineer our, uh, our uh, military. Yes, our military to start with and then ourselves because it won't, it won't stop there. Uh, the, the transhumanist agenda won't stop there. Um, the was it Frederick Pohl wrote a science fiction book back in the oh, I don't know seventies now called Man Plus, which covered some of these issues um, and made it quite starkly uh, clear that um, 
with each of these there that each of these modifications there will be a price to be paid as uh, things will be lost as well um, the lack of the lack of any proper discussion over this the fact that it's been rolled out um without much debate in parliament in the case of the uh, in, in case of the bill uh without any debate in parliament in case in the case of modifying soldiers um is is deeply worrying that uh, there seems to be an agenda here again pushing things forward on a path that uh the british people hasn't hasn't chosen uh, our parliament such as it is hasn't chosen um and that is largely being done in the dark uh, indeed uh, well mark we're going to come on to to uh uh, cities in a second. So if I can welcome you to the show just before we, we cover uh, cities and uh, uh, urban, the U7, Urban 7 group. Uh, have you got any thoughts on, on the genetic modification topic we just covered? Oh, yeah, a little bit. You know, it it, um, it has all the smell and taste of private companies pushing this, uh, seeking ex extreme market advantage, uh, uh, whether it's the modification of crops, or, or livestock, or people, uh, and, and like David said, Parliament basically being absent here uh, in terms of determining how to do this or if to do this uh, in, in conjunction with the British voters and the people themselves. It, it has all the makings of private companies pushing their agenda with all their might, getting the government to work for them and not work for the people. And that's our new constituency is, is, is faceless corporations, your Pfizer's of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're jockeying for position to, to create, you know, huge new avenues by which to make enormous sums of money. And whether it actually benefits society or not is at best a secondary consideration. Yes. Okay. Well, let's uh, come on to the U7. Now, this is an organization, Mark, that almost me. I certainly hadn't heard of it until yesterday, but uh, let, let's hear about this. Yeah, this, when I was preparing the AV thing and I had the slides just about done, I found this late in the game <clears throat> and the, the gentleman producing the show that helped produce the show um, plugged, plugged one slide in for me and I was quite surprised myself. Uh, the U7 is, is the Urban 7 and they're in conjunction literally uh, with the G7, the group of nations, and they're basically one and the same now. They're they're breaking bread together, and they're uh, massaging policy together across a broad spectrum of issues, thereby elevating cities from their normal municipal functions and formally and officially making cities part of the internationalist network. <clears throat> and here we're seeing a slide, uh, the U7, the Urban 7, uh, there's the U7 group, as I inscribed with my stylus there in red, city networks in their role as speakers for cities and municipalities constitute the central actors of the U7 or Urban 7 process. The U the U7 group, together with national associations of cities and network partners, that involves a lot of private actors, ensures that all G7 countries and the local governments are therefore represented in the U7 process, the U7 Secretariat. The U7 group is chaired by the U7 Secretariat consisting of the Local Governments for Sustainability Organization and the Global Parliament of Mayors, there they are, as well as the city association from the country leading the G7 that year. In 2023, it was Japan, a Japanese association. 
moving on from there, uh, since its launch in 2021, get this, by Core Cities UK, the G7 Urban 7 or U7 advocates for a continuous dialogue between the G7 nations and municipal actors represented by these national associations and supported by international city networks. So Core Cities UK actually sired this. They actually gave birth to this uh, U7 group. Uh, moving on from there, we see another interesting statement. We And this is all from the U7's official website. I'm not pulling this out of any hat here. We acknowledge the significant role of cities, their associations and networks as actors in our transformation towards sustainable development. Uh, we commit to foster exchange among and with cities. And I emphasize the words there in our transformation towards sustainable development. As I mentioned at AV, the global cities movement with smart cities technology uh, outfitted, all of it, all roads lead to the sustainable development goals of the UN. So all the cities, the global cities with the smart cities technology, they all have to think alike. They all have to adopt the same ideology. They all have to have the achievement of the sustainable development goals as their ultimate objectives. And therefore, U7 plugs into G7 and everything is formalized. Uh, going on from there, uh, we have uh, the National Associations of Cities that are, in, that are involved in the Urban 7. We have Canada, the Federation of Canadian Mis Municipalities, France, uh, which is France Urbane or Urban France, Germany, uh, the Association of German Cities, excuse me, Italy, the National Association of Italian Municipalities, uh, Japan, as noted, they're sort of the designated group right now, and that's through the uh, Japan-designated City Mayors Association, the European Union, EuroCities, the creator of uh, U7, uh, Core Cities UK, and USA, the United States Conference of Mayors. A quick footnote on the United States Conference of Mayors, they used to simply lobby uh, national and state officials for the legislation they want. Evidently, they're getting impatient, and now they're getting more directly involved. And here we have something about the Global Parliament of Mayors up, and the Global Parliament of Mayors is, is one of the key cornerstones of this whole U7 operation. Uh, the Global Parliament of Mayors is a governance body, so these mayors come together without any, without any authority that I'm aware of from their city charters or their national constitutions. They come together, and by virtue of that alone, they believe they have the uh, lawful authority to govern, so they call themselves a governance body of, by, and for mayors from all continents with a vision of the world in which mayors, their cities, and networks and are equal partners in building global governance, equal partners. So they're, they're now equal partners with nation states to build global governance for an inclusive, of course, and sustainable world. Its mission is to facilitate debates between mayors, national governments, and international organizations, which is a bunch of private unelected uh, orgs, drive systematic change to take on global and national challenges and opportunities to achieve political change on a global scale. So you can see what's happening. Everything's getting hardwired now. And uh, this is the other um, chief uh, private organization like, like the Global Parliament of Mayors that's involved in this. 
and this is the Local Governments for Sustainability I mentioned a few minutes ago. Local Governments for Sustainability is a global network of more than 2,500 local and regional governments committed to sustainable urban development. ECLI, I'm going to roughly pronounce the uh, acronym, its members and team of experts work together in over 125 countries through peer exchange partnerships and capacity building to create systemic change for urban sustainability, more globalese buzzwords, and to respond to complex global challenges. Local Governments for Sustainability brings the latest global knowledge and solutions to the local context. So they're um, uh, localizing globalism or globalism, as they sometimes euphemistically call it. And I believe this is the last posting to describe and or to, to give an overview of this. Uh, here we have the U7 groups, uh, one of their main statements from their website, the U7 group invites the G7 countries and G7 engagement groups to recognize the U7 as the new G7 engagement group and thereby acknowledge the importance of these objectives. Uh, this includes the engagement in G7 ministerial meetings focusing on the topic of city diplomacy. Here, here's that theme again that cities believe they have the prerogative and authority to actually conduct diplomacy usually reserved to nation states, and multi-level cooperation and overall cooperation by effectively engaging in local and regional governments in G7 meetings. The ultimate aim of the U7 engagement group will be to represent the interests of cities, municipalities, and regional governments. Its core will consist of national associations of cities supported by international city networks, as we've learned. Thus, the U7 engagement group will form a bridge between local and national governments. That is really describing what this is about. The U7 engagement group will form a bridge between local and national governments, offering local actors, kind of a strange choice of words there, as, as an, offering these local actors, excuse me, an opportunity to join forces and better position themselves in international political processes. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, as the first step towards establishing the official U7 engagement group, the Urban 7 Group Alliance hosted the U7 Mayor's Summit with the theme, Embracing the Urban World, Cities as Drivers for Peace, Democracy, and Sustainability. And uh, come to think of it, I think I wrote a final statement on this. Uh, yeah, th this is some of my writing um, in a preliminary article that I'll soon be submitting. Um, it, it talks a little bit about who's been involved. I'll just pull out a couple names. Peter Kurz, the mayor of Mannheim, Germany, chairman of the Global Parliament of Mayors, and another very significant one, his name comes up again and again and again in global cities parlance, and that's Marvin Rees right over there in Bristol, UK, chairman of the UK Core Cities, which actually created the Urban Seven. So Marvin Rees is up to his neck in this thing. And you've got Alberta, Canada involved, Des Moines, Iowa, of all places, at, uh, and Fort Collins, Colorado, et cetera. So um, there's a declaration uh, that was made. Um, I'll read part of it. I have another monitor here. Uh, part of this declaration from the mayor's summit that happened uh, recently this spring. Therefore, we mayors and leaders of the Urban 7 Group gathered through uh, the networks of local governments of G7 nations and European multilateral, multi-level governance under Germany's G7 presidency in 2022. Um, uh, they applaud 
the G7's unprecedented recognition of urban seven uh, cities and sustainable development or sustainable urban development and multi-level governance. I might have misread that a little bit, but I uh, I don't know if you guys have any comments or observations. I had one more uh, on that slide. I had one more thing to read on yeah, the prior well, one. Yes. Well. Well. Look, Mark. The, the key point here is isn't it that that uh, we notionally live in so-called de democratic societies. We elect representatives to represent us at a national level and represent us uh, with other international bodies and organizations and countries uh, through diplomacy. Uh, and what's effectively happening here is that people that are either unelected or they're either pseudo-elected, but they're elected on the basis of providing services at a local level, collecting the bins and keeping the streetlights on. Uh, these people are now deciding that they want to be involved in the international conversations. And why? Because uh, for whatever ideological reasons, they are wanting to get involved in the climate change agenda, in the uh, the, the gender and, and sexuality uh, discussions and so on at an international level and do diplomacy at an international level, subverting in some ways. And David, I'd be interested to hear whether you think that the word subverting is inappropriate here. Subverting uh, the national conversation and national discussion, because of course we're not having conversations, or people aren't having conversations with their local mayors about international uh, uh, policies. No, subverting's one way of putting it. Um, another way is is the whole common purpose uh, mantra of uh, operate beyond your authority. I mean, th that this is an example par, par excellence of that. Um, the the fact that it was founded by a British group, I think, is very interesting. Also, the, the, the constituents of that, it's Belfast, Birmingham, Bristol, Cardiff, Glasgow, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, Nottingham and Sheffield. Not Edinburgh, not London, um, which is interesting. Uh, Glasgow, remember, uh, is having problems with uh, rat infestations and collecting the bins, so much so that... Uh, uh, the Glaswegian bin men have got a giant inflatable rat called Kludgy, the rat, that they use for campaigning about the uh, the dangers that their members are experiencing collecting the bins in Glasgow. And this is obviously due to the fact that bin collection isn't working as well as it used to, because it used to be about keeping the city clean and tidy, and it's not anymore. Now it's about, about sustainable development goals. And, uh, and, and, and recycling. It's not about the thing that used to be about, so therefore it's not working. So they're not able to do that, but they're quite happy to declare themselves as, what was it now? The, oh yes, the U7 group highlights the role of cities as custodians of peace and democracy. So we can't, we can't actually collect the bins, but we are custodians of peace and democracy. Oh, okay. Yes, indeed, uh, yes. Acting beyond authority. So, uh, Mark, uh, you wanted to highlight this uh, article uh, from the UK column. Yeah, uh, this is another thing I didn't get in the AB yesterday, um, but this is an article I've had posted a while. It goes back to the Global Cities uh, uh, meetings of a year or two ago, a couple of years ago. COVID injections tip of the spear for Global Cities' militant pursuit of equity. And uh, this, the Global Cities, of course, and here's Gillian Tett showed on this slide of the Financial Times, this collaborator with the Global Cities Movement, 
we're living in a post-national world and everything we've talked about here today and yesterday is certainly bearing that out. And uh, with COVID, they, you know, they felt it was an extreme injustice if some country or some minority within a country didn't get all the jabs that they deserve, completely ignoring adverse effects uh, of these jabs. So yeah, this, this is really driving home what we've been covering for several years here on Global Cities. Yeah. And it's, I, I wasn't totally aware that they're actually abandoning their general responsibilities as municipal officials, that the bins are not being cleaned that there's maybe larger rat infestations and so on and so forth. So yes, they're, they're even jettisoning, uh, abandoning that is their, their, their actual sworn duties and pursuing uh, authority that they really don't have. And that's actually the definition of tyranny. The exercise of power without authority is a pretty tidy definition of tyranny. Yes. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Okay. If you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the UK column shop, which is shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, but please do uh, share anything that you find on the various platforms, including the main website, which is uh, just ukcolumn.org or ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Now, David, uh, good news. You're back on Twitter. I'm back on Twitter. I'm really very chuffed. Uh, Albion underscore Rover, at Albion underscore Rover, is back on Twitter. Um, I had 14,000 followers when they threw me off and suspended me two years ago. 13,000 are still there, so thank you for all of the, all of that support. Um, and a special uh, quiz here, uh, see if anyone's of enough of a aficionado of 1980s television to understand why I've got a picture of Ian Cuthbertson playing Charles Endo Esquire um, to celebrate my return to Twitter. One person who did get it asked me whether that meant that Alex Thompson was budgie, um, which I thought was quite astute. Um, so the advantage of being back on Twitter is you can get messages out um, much more rapidly. Now, one thing we had here, we, got, we had a Freedom of Information response by NHS Lanarkshire, uh, pointed out by David Tate, uh, one of uh, a regular UK column contributor. And the information they have published, which we have to take at least for the moment on face, on face value, on early pregnancy losses, there's a sudden doubling in 2022, which is simply astonishing. Now, I asked them the question, basically what's happening with this figure? I... Now, the, the advantage of Twitter is that that's received 432,000 so far tweet impressions um, and, and nearly 11,000 engagements. So it, it does get the message out. The actual figure may or may not be correct. Here we see Professor uh, Norman Fenton, also UK column contributor, um, uh, and again via Twitter, actually highlighting this, this figure. And he's saying there's something very strange going on. Um, there's been a worrying drop in the number of live births and an increase in neonatal deaths, but a doubling of miscarriages in 2022 doesn't seem possible. It might be a reporting error. We are trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, okay, now tomorrow at 1pm uh, on the live stream, uh, we have a video interview with you and uh, Claudio Grass. Yes, yeah, so Claudio Grass is based in Switzerland. He deals with hard money, gold and silver, real money. And he also knows a thing or two about the Swiss banking system. And we're going to be talking about money and banking 
and uh, the nature of the Swiss banking system and many other interesting topics. So please join us for that. Uh, and then another upcoming video is uh, the SNP Explained. Yeah, this has just gone out. I was a guest on uh, UK Force for Goods uh, channel, um, and uh, I wanted to talk about what the SNP actually was. So I hope people will check that out. We have a small clip. My basic, basic thesis was that uh, the, 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 the SNP now is not the SNP of old. Uh, what we now have is something where they have only one unifying idea, which is anti-Britishness. They don't agree on much. The only thing that holds them together is this anti-Britishness. Uh, and I go on here in this little clip to exp explain some of the strange contradictions that come from that. This is one of the points that I, I try and make in the column, is you can't look for a politician to do it for you. You can't look for a leader to, to actually come and lead unless the people are at, are at a point where they'll respond. Right? We have to be knowledgeable about who we are, who we are as a nation, what we believe in. We've got to discuss it. We've got to come to some reasonable, reasonably harmonious agreement as to what it is we are, what Britain means. But one of the things that, that always annoys me about the, the nationalist idea is they try simultaneously to say there are no borders, right? Because the nationalists don't believe in borders. We, we, will, we will have immigration without limit. If you listen to them, everyone can come to Scotland. Everyone's welcome. We're just so wonderful, right? right? That's what they actually say. Whether they'll do it's another matter. But Ireland's doing it. Ireland's got some serious problems in this area, right? And so they say there's no, but we don't want borders. We don't want any borders anywhere. We don't want any separation between one sort of person and another. But we're nothing like the English. That's just one of the contradictions. I go through quite a number of them in that, in that talk, so hopefully people will check that out. Okay, um, now at, and, at the weekend... And finally... Yes, sorry, I was just going to say, at the weekend, uh, the Scottish Vaccine Injury Group uh, rally took place, the Unity rally took place uh, in Glasgow on Saturday. Uh, and, uh, well, we had a representative there because you weren't able to attend this, but uh, Di is coming uh, on extra with us. Yes, Di will be joining us. She was there all day and she's joining us to talk about it uh, this, uh, this afternoon. And there, there will also be video and interview footage from that will be publishing in the next week or two. Uh, okay, so let's come back to the culture wars then, David. Okay, so here we have uh, Stuart Waiton uh, from the the Scottish Union for Education, and he's highlighting um, one of the lesson plans that has been circulated around for Scottish teachers to use. So he's uh, urging heads to drop the trans lesson plan. It's, uh, it says an education uh, pressure group uh, has called on uh, head teachers to ditch an inappropriate lesson plan that tells primary school pupils it's acceptable to want to identify as a boy or a girl. Uh, schools across the country have been issued with a learning resource entitled Being Transgender as part of the uh, lessons on relationship, sexual health and parenthood. So we have uh, an example of what that means, of what's actually in that. Um, so this is the, the, the three main points we're making to teachers. So one says that a person describes himself as transgender, uh, they feel that there's the sex they were born doesn't match how they feel inside. So a transgender woman lives as a woman today but was born a boy. A transgender man lives as a man today but was born a girl. 
Again, I wouldn't actually say that's particularly accurate, but that's what they're teaching the children. Uh, they're then highlighting uh, the issue of prejudice that's come very much in this vein. This is how it's been introduced. Um, remember learning about prejudice, discrimination, sexism, uh, introduced the word transphobia. So they're almost the first thing they're learning is uh, it's, it's phobic, it's insane, it's mental illness to have negative feelings towards... Uh, an individual based on the, the, the choices they're making in this area. Uh, the word that explains when someone is hot or put down because they're transgender. So they're mobilising the, 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 the sympathy that children would naturally feel for someone who's being hurt or, or, or um, uh, bullied over this. And this is how it's being sold. The key points to note are um, the technology for people who are transgender, things can be difficult when other people are cruel or rude to them. Not that it's difficult per se because of the choices they've made. No, it's difficult when other people are cruel or rude. Um, and remember that every one of us is born unique and special. That's what, that what makes us so interesting. So it's extremely supportive. It comes with slides. Here are the slides. Um, so it's introducing what is transgender and it's just basically covering these few simple points again. Um, and remain, reminding the children that transphobia is a kind of prejudice and discrimination. And then there's additional material. Um, one of the bits of additional material is a link to the Sandiford Clinic. Now, the Sandiford Clinic is involved in using puberty blockers to prevent children developing, and then in mutilating surgery. The fact that that's cropping up in uh, guidance to teachers is more than a little concerning. And there's then... Uh, a, a, a video on how to be a girl, daily life with my transgender daughter. A very, quite a long video. I can't show you really a, a, a clip for want of time, but it's, um, it's, it's out and out propaganda. It's clearly not telling the whole story. It's very much cherry picking for effect. It's done with uh, cartoon-like stick drawings, and very childlike language throughout, which seems to be to be a, a manipulation as well. Uh, I'm quite concerned by that being part of the teaching pack. And the whole thing is, the Scottish Union of Education feels inappropriate, I would agree with them, and it's calling on head, head teachers to decide not um, to use this material. And of course, one of the big things here is for parents to become aware of what is being taught to their children. Uh, the website that that information comes from is rshp.scot. All of the information that they're using uh, on this in this particular subject area is on that website. Please check it out. Um, okay, but there's uh, a bit of pushback then. Yes, and the point I'm making here is here you've got Natalie Jean Bresner. She made a, a video uh, basically pushing back on the, the, the lies or the implications of the stories that children have been told in schools uh, or that, that uh, mainstream culture is, is communicating. And she's saying, basically, this is not true. So this is someone who used to be on the left, used to be a Democrat, has walked away from left-wing politics and is talking about simple realities of human relationships. And we're seeing more and more of that where people are standing up on social media and elsewhere and speaking what they believe to be accurate, and um, we're not seeing it very often from academics. We're not seeing it from specialists in education. We're not seeing it from 
government agencies. We're seeing the pushback much more from ordinary people who are turning around and saying, actually, no, this is seriously missing the point here. We need to get a grip of reality. So it's, in the, it's to the ordinary people that we must look with uh, more hope for some common sense, I think. Yes, okay, thanks for that. Now let's uh, move international and uh, Sudan, first of all. Uh, now this is John Stevens who uh, writes for The Mirror uh, and he's saying 2,000 British nationals still trapped in Sudan told to stay indoors as fighting rages. Now I've seen th that number being as high as 4,000 so it's not clear exactly how many British nationals uh, are there. It's also not clear uh, what they were doing there. So, so uh, if they are in fact working for NGOs and other organizations that might be funded by the Foreign Office, then recent developments become uh, even more uh, troubling uh, if you happen to be there, because certainly betrayal would be the word that comes to mind. Because these people, these British nationals that have been uh, in Sudan since the fighting broke out, have been talking for about a week now about the fact they're not getting any support from the Foreign Office in order to get them evacuated. In fact, the Foreign Office isn't even interested in who they are or where they are, apparently. Uh, they're saying that other uh, national embassies uh, in uh, Sudan uh, are compiling lists of uh, their nationals that are in the countries with, uh, uh, with a view to preparing to getting them out. Um, so anyway, we've just got a little uh, video clip here. This is Ruth Lawson, uh, and she is the Chargé d'Affaires in Sudan, talking about what British nationals should be doing. I'm Ruth Lawson, the Charge d'Affaires at the British Embassy in Khartoum, Sudan. I'm here in my home, sheltering down with my family. This is a deeply concerning time for Sudan, for Khartoum and all across the country. The UK Foreign Secretary has called for an immediate end to hostilities. We recommend that everyone remains in home, takes shelter, but please do continue to check our travel advice for further updates. This can be found on gov.uk. Okay, so that was what she had to say. Stay in place, don't worry, or at least she's not even saying that. Just stay in place and don't move. Uh, in the meantime, what has the British government been doing? Well, they ran a military operation uh, over the weekend uh, to get the embassy staff out of Sudan. Uh, and, uh, well, here is James Cleverly, the Foreign uh, Secretary, uh, discussing that. I'm in the FCDO Crisis Response Centre where we have been working with our colleagues across government to extract the diplomats and their immediate families from Khartoum because the situation had deteriorated and they were under direct threat. We're going to relocate their functions so that we can continue to support British nationals in Sudan and we're working across government and with our friends and partners internationally on uh, uh, doing everything we can to keep British nationals safe. But ultimately, the best thing we can accomplish is to bring this fighting to an end. That's what we're focused on. So actually, they're focusing on bringing the fighting to an end. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they intend to achieve that. Uh, they're not focused on helping the British nationals that are there. And this is very much the message uh, from uh, people that are stuck in the country. Uh, some people stuck in the country without even uh, electricity uh, to power mobile phones and so on, and they're getting very concerned that, uh, that, that you know, without regular uh, power supplies, that they're going to be able to continue to stay in contact with people. So this is a very dangerous situation for some, and the British government apparently not caring too much about it. Uh, but Tobias Elwood had something to say. 
because uh, he tweeted this out, that there could be no doubt that this was a highly complex and dangerous mission, well done to all involved. Uh, attention must now turn to establishing safe exit routes for the few thousand UK passport holders still in Sudan. So Tobias Elwood, of course, chair of the Defence Select Committee, but the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee also defending the government's position on this and really uh, saying nothing to put pressure on the Foreign Office or the government to help uh, the people that are in Sudan. Uh, Tobias Elwood had more to say about the broader situation. Uh, the fighting in Sudan priority is now initiating UK evacuation plan, but it's important to understand the bigger picture because we must not forget it's all Russia's fault. Uh, Russia and the Wagner Group have armed both sides in return for exploiting Sudan's goal to pay for the Ukraine war is his latest attempt to justify uh, the position that uh, UK has taken on Sudan for the last uh, period of time. But nonetheless, uh, any excuse, David, for uh, uh, a bit of anti-Russian propaganda. But I don't think betrayal is too strong uh, here because people have been left to their own devices in a, a deteriorating situation and no support from the UK government. Yes. And, and Elwood says, oh, a few thousand. It's just a few thousand. 4,000 British passport holders are still in the country. Including men, women 4, and children. And they, yes. And they're, they're making sure, well, we'll get, the, we'll get the diplomats to safety. Is it not meant to be the other way about? I mean, do we not have a situation where we sent a guy called Gordon to Khartoum and he defended it for like 18 months while being surrounded by a hostile army? And 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 was 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 killed defending the people of Khartoum. You know, we this we we used to not cut and run. Now, okay, there were several issues with the Gordon campaign because it was kind of slightly unauthorized. Uh, but never nevertheless, whatever else it was, it was courageous. I don't really see much courage here from the dear old British government anymore. Um, but it doesn't end there because, uh, well, the Ukraine war, here it is. Uh, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, now, this isn't going to be, I'm not going to talk about the conflict itself today. Uh, I want to explain why I say it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, because uh, the British Embassy in Kiev has decided that it's going to accept policy proposals for the financial years 2023 and 2024 and 2024 to 2025, pending funding from not-for-profit organizations operating in Ukraine. Uh, and what could this be about? Well, this is what they say. They say war is a catalyst for change. However, such change is not limited to military development. Government structures, processes, and policies must also develop at a pace. So let's take advantage of the situation. Let's make sure we can get our agendas in and get government structures changed in the model that we would like. So let's have a look and see. I've just chosen a few items from the list here. Uh, so, David, you'll be very interested in this. Uh, transition from Soviet-style planned economy to capability-based planning and introduction of the Strategic Defence Review. So they're going to bring the Strategic Defence Review into Ukraine. Uh, they're going to solve the problem of defence procurement. And they're going to reform that. They're going to solve uh, the corruption by running anti-corruption investigations. So, OK, so far so good. But here's the bit. It's going to introduce women, peace and security agenda to the wider security sector in Ukraine because this is the best time to do that. When the country is in absolute chaos and absolute uh, being destroyed and destabilized, that is the time to bring the woke agenda in and make sure that uh, you change the culture of the country uh, under the guise of the chaos of the war. 
Indeed. It, it, this, is, this is remarkable stuff. I mean, the, the, the first one was particularly odd because we're, we're changing from central planning, Soviet-style central planning, to, what, European-style central planning. Right? Mm. They were still talking about a planned economy. They're not talking about freedom. No, we're not having any of that. And uh, the idea that um, the sort of defence reviews, which have always been associated with uh, short-sighted thinking um, and the shelving of importing and important groundbreaking and world-leading projects in this country, um, is what uh, the Ukraine needs, seems to be uh, fanciful. Yes. Okay, Mark, uh, let's bring you back and uh, back onto the city's agenda in a certain way. But Richard Haas, uh, just tell us who he is. Uh, he's been the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, the original one in New York, for about 20 years, I understand. And uh, this really caught my eye recently. He's going to be speaking May 2nd to their ideological cousins at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I'm going to cover it virtually. I'd like to be there. That's probably not doable travel-wise and schedule-wise. But um, he's brought out a book called The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. And it sounds pretty good at first. Uh, there's a lot of well-written and well-thought-out chapters. I, I read some excerpts last night and listened to a video to make sure I understood where he's coming from. And these well-thought-out chapters and, and sections are on the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, things like that, what it means to be American. It says here, uh, as noted in this uh, next slide, uh, he's uh, uh, an experienced diplomat and policymaker as well. He was director of policy planning for the Department of State from 01 to 03, where he was a principal advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell on a range of foreign policy concerns. That's a little bit more about Richard Haas. And moving forward from there, uh, these are actual excerpts from his book, and um, th this sort of dissects where he's coming from and kind of exposes some of the fallacies of logic, and that's putting it mildly. Uh, he notes here, and I underlined it, the fact that as of this writing, a significant percentage of the population refuses to accept the results of the November 2020 U.S. election, and a meaningful number of those with leadership roles in the Republican Party are encouraging them not to is evidence that something is seriously amiss. And this fits into uh, his, his 10 recommendations. Um, and he, he's basically saying that, that you can have this, this civic ethos, this civic plan, and that uh, if, if citizens would just get, get with the program and if they would just uh, drop some of the complaints and drop some of their doubts and give sufficient fealty and tribute to the US system, then we could all come together and have have a, a much more coherent civic discourse and advance as a country, as a democracy. And he's not altogether wrong. There is a lot of fragmenting in the United States. Some of the things he says might help bring a little bit more uh, unanimity to what's going on, and that might be helpful. But one of the problems is that his his whole thesis is infected with this idea that the establishment worldview is the only worldview. And that if you question elections, if you question certain other things, you're being kind of heretical, if you will, to his 10 commandments, if you will, or 10 obligations to being a good civic citizen. So yes, you can engage in more uh, equitable and uh, harmonious civics if you 
adopt the worldview that the Richard Hosses of the world have adopted. So questioning elections does not qualify you to be part of this new civic discourse outlined in his book. Uh, the next slide, it gets into more of that. The results of an election that was overwhelmingly free and fair, that's absolutely false. It was not overwhelmingly free and fair by any stretch. Uh, those results have been rejected by tens of millions of Americans, even though literally dozens of audits have shown the vote counts to be accurate. There's no equivocation there, notice. In Georgia, a law was passed that hands the state legislature enormous say over who would cast the state's electoral votes in future presidential elections. While that kind of contradicts his whole thesis, the, the state of Georgia has that prerogative uh, to change the way they do the electoral votes if they so choose, according to Richard Haas's own view on the United States system, the federalist system. And so, uh, He's kind of walking into contradictory waters there, you might say. And uh, moving on from there, uh, this is also interesting. Uh, I highlighted this. Congressional leadership could not even agree to establish a bipartisan commission along the lines of the commission formed to investigate the September 11 terrorist attacks to investigate the events of the insurrection, I'm adding that word, of January 6, 2021. And see here again is that establishmentarian point of view that has, has to hold sway for his civic prescriptions to work. And so many, many Americans, probably a majority now, absolutely distrust the Warren Commission used to investigate the JFK affair. And the 9-11 Commission is not all that far behind. Uh, very few people that I know that I've ever talked to across a broad spectrum in my 36 years of journalism have ever given much credence to the 9-11 Commission, just like they give very little to the uh, Warren Commission back in JFK's day. So um, here in this next slide, and we'll get through this pretty quickly, some would describe the rights of the unborn as absolute, others the rights of the mother. He's trying to be even-handed here. Some believe any constraints on access to guns and ammo are unacceptable. Others see such limits on gun stuff as essential for the right to be safe. So similar arguments have been put, put, put forth when it comes to mandates for masks and vaccines, with some maintaining that any mandate infringes on free choice, while others say that mandates are needed for public health. There are, there are intense debates, get this, over whether free speech is sacrosanct or whether it requires limits when it includes assertions that are untrue. See, so, but he doesn't get into who determines what assertions are true and what are untrue, and doesn't get into the fact that there's heavy duty government data showing that these jabs have been showing, uh, resulting in a lot of adverse effects and strongly suspected deaths. And that's the yellow card on your side, side of the pond, the bear system on our side of the pond. So, in laying out this, this prescription for civic virtue, for civic har harmony, he, he's having to make a lot of omissions here, and his words on abortion, uh, trying to be neutral, are actually quite misleading. And a lot of that is because he's trying to construct uh, a civic plan, a civic uh, uh, um, agenda, without the, the basic fundamental traditional elements of Western civilization, and one of those is Christianity. Um, the country was basically founded as a Christian republic, and he's trying to uh, remold this along the lines of a non-Christian secular democracy. So therefore, the actual reality of the, the, of the abortion industry, the killing machine that it really is, is absolutely avoided 
because you have to be polite. You can't rock the boat too much in order to follow this civic plan. But we're just kind of winding up here. Um, what he says, two of his recommended obligations out of his Ten Commandments, and that that's maybe a slight exaggeration to use the word commandments, but two of those commandments are to get informed, you're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. He quoted that on a video, Mr. Haas did, and that came from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a, a late U.S. senator from the uh, from the Northeast. And then he mentioned that social media is the chief source of misinformation, and he did not mention the mass media cartel. So uh, only social media is to be distrusted. Therefore, only alternative media that largely uses social media is to be distrusted. And uh, he mentioned New Jersey passed a law to teach information literacy in its schools. Mr. Haas would like to see such, such laws passed in all 50 states. And another one of his glowing recommendations is to learn civics. Now, I wouldn't disagree with that. I don't think any of us would. Uh, people are dreadfully uninformed about civics. And, and so therefore, getting informed should be part of the civics curriculum. So his number one commandment to get informed uh, becomes part of another one of his high priorities to learn civics. Students in, in all, across the whole educational spectrum, he says, need to learn the U.S. Constitution, the, the, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, key Supreme Court decisions, etc. Uh, he quotes the Declaration of Independence where it says men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. But uh, his book uh, steadfastly avoids the idea uh, of, of Christianity or, or the guiding hand of God and providence in human affairs. And ultimately, that's its ultimate weakness. So he's he's peddling kind of a half-baked scheme here that's intelligently written, has, has some salient points, but I think ultimately lacks the, the key cornerstones of Western civilization that have served mankind for, for millennia. Okay, thank you, Mark, for that. And okay, we're, we're just about out of time, uh, but David, we want to leave with, uh, with a final thought. I thought this is a wonderful meme summarizing NATO policy towards Russia. Small boy in the back of the car is annoying his sister, holding his finger right next to her eyeball and basically saying, I'm not touching so you can't get mad. I thought that was just perfect. Yes, of course, she is getting mad and she looks like she's just about to thump him, which, which is pretty much what we have been doing uh, to Russia, indeed. Okay, let's leave it there for today. Thank you very much to David and to Mark. Uh, we will be back in a couple of minutes, as we said earlier, with a special guest uh, for Extra. So if you're a UK call member and you'd like to join us for that, please do. We'd be very welcome. Uh, otherwise, we'll see everybody 1 p.m. as usual on Wednesday. But don't forget uh, David's uh, interview uh, tomorrow, 1 p.m. on the uh, in the usual places, ukcolumn.org slash live, uh, for example. At 1 p.m. tomorrow, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.